Very good. Okay, new series today, ladies and gentlemen. We are in Ecclesiastes. If you recall this summer, we were in Proverbs. Um, and so we went through uh, the Proverbs this summer, and it's a part of a grouping in the Bible called wisdom literature. And uh, there are kind of three primary, there's more than this, but three primary wisdom books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And so we've been in Proverbs, we are going to be in Ecclesiastes, and I don't know if we're going to be in Job anytime soon. So just preparing you, you don't have to ask that question, we'll see. Um, All of these answer the same question in different ways, from different vantage points. And the, the question is, what kind of world do we live in, and how do we live in this world well? What kind of world do we live in? And how do we live in this world well? So the Proverbs approach that from a very different angle than Ecclesiastes does. But both are driving at wisdom, seeking wisdom. We talked about this last, this summer, but each of these books, uh, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job, they kind of, um, you can can personify each of those books as people. And so Proverbs is like a brilliant young teacher. So she comes to us with uh, wisdom on work and money and sex and spirituality and friendship and integrity. And you come to Ecclesiastes, and it's a sharp, middle-aged critic who engages the world in a very different angle, a very different perspective. And then you come to Job as a weathered, older individual who's been through the gauntlet of life and come out on the other side. And each one of them gives us a different angle of life. What kind of world do we live in and how do we live in this world well? So Ecclesiastes, wildly popular, wildly popular. Um, Warm, fuzzy book. Um, Ecclesiastes is like a wet blanket that could be thrown on our expectations of life. And it couldn't be a better gift to us just confronting us, confronting our expectations of what we think we deserve in life. And it confronts us and brings hope to us. Ecclesiastes has a message to us that we need to hear. So entering this warm, fuzzy book this fall, we're going to be seeking wisdom together. Over these next 12 plus weeks, we're going to be navigating through this together. And Ecclesiastes, it comes to us. And again, you go Psalms, and then you go Proverbs, and you go Ecclesiastes. That's where you're going to be. There's 12 chapters there. Ecclesiastes comes to us like C.S. Lewis came in 1960 when he wrote a series of writings called The Grief, Grief Observed. And these writings came after he experienced and reflected upon the death of his wife. And so uh, C.S. Lewis, you know, he, he came and he, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, this hope-filled book about Aslan, this lion who's coming and rescuing this world. He wrote these books called Mere Christianity and other books that provided hope to us. But then you read A Grief Observed, and it's another tone. It's another message. Up to this point, he's mostly positive and inspiring, but in Grief Observed, it's a different approach. Some of the quotes in Grief Observed are like this, no one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. He said, the death of a beloved is an amputation. He said, grief is like a long valley, a winding valley where any bend may reveal a totally new landscape. It's raw, It's transparent, it's unusual, it's strange, it's befuddling, grief observed is. It's necessary but painful. You don't expect these words from C.S. Lewis, and likewise, we don't expect the words that we get from Ecclesiastes. Yet the same God who inspired the Psalms, 
the same God who inspired the Gospels, also inspired Ecclesiastes. St. Augustine said, where Scripture speaks, God speaks. So in Ecclesiastes, God is going to speak to us. And I want to receive, I want to submit to those words. See, there are things you thought you knew about life. There are things that you thought and I thought that we knew about the world and what it would give us, the promises that it says it will give us and doesn't. There are things that you thought you knew about God and what he ought to provide to you. And this critic, this preacher, is going to put those expectations on trial. All of them. Expectations you have of life, expectations you have of the world and what it ought to give you, expectations of the world and what it should, or of God and what he should give to you. And the critic's going to expose those things. It's going to he, he's going to humanize the struggles that we have in life and help us to see that the formulas under the sun will simply not provide what they promise. And I promise at the end it's going to bring some really hopeful news. So you've got you to go through it, though, okay? So we're going to go through it together, and we're going to do that this fall. So let's jump in. We're going to read and talk and read and talk and read and talk, and then we're going to do that next week and the next week and the next week and the next one and the next week, and then we're going to be finished with the book. That's what we're going to do. So Ecclesiastes 1, 1. Let me pray for us. Father, we want you to speak. We ask that you would. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move among us. I pray that you would provide wisdom, true wisdom, substantial, lasting wisdom in our souls. Or we confess as a community, knowing that this is a hospital for the broken, not those that are proud. We come with a limp this morning and we say that we confess that we have embraced the promises of this world and we're feeling the fact that they don't fulfill. And I pray that you would illuminate our hearts and bring life to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Ecclesiastes 1.1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. We're pausing. So the author here, we don't know exactly who the author is. Okay, so there's two ways that we can see it, and I'll tell you the way I'm going to approach this. The first is that it could be Solomon. So we read here, he's the son of David. And so who are the sons of David? We, we begin to see that he's a king of uh, Jerusalem. So how many kings were before Solomon, before David? The answer is none. And so we begin to realize that if we just kind of do some basic math here, it seems like it should be Solomon. You, you go later on in chapter 1, we see in verse 16 that, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were uh, over Jerusalem before me. And so we know that in Solomon's life that he actually uh, encountered God and experienced some wisdom that was pretty substantial. And so many would think, and I'm going to go down this path, that Solomon was the author of this book. But just for clarity, uh, I also want to say that this could also be a royal um, fictional autobiography. And so what I mean by that is hundreds of years later, someone could have taken Solomon's name and reflected upon Solomon's life and used that as a vantage point of how to write this book. It'd be like 500 years from now in the 21st century, considering our culture in this 21st century, someone writing from the vantage point of President Barack Obama. And so 500 years later, somebody using his name and writing as if they were him, that could be uh, a way that you approach it. But again, I will approach this book like it is Solomon, son of David, 
king of Jerusalem. So out of the womb, what we know about Solomon is that he had privilege on privilege on privilege on privilege. And so we need to know this, that he is beyond us. He's beyond anything you could ever conceive. He's beyond anything you could ever dream. And so we need to allow his life to inform our life because he is simply beyond you. So just take that pill and swallow it and embrace the fact that he is simply beyond you. He became king and me. Uh, he became king in uh, 970 BC to 931 BC. Um, we learn a little bit about him in 2 Chronicles 1, 7. I'll read it to you. It says, in that night, God appeared to Solomon, this guy, and said to him, ask what I shall give, ask what I shall give you. I mean, that's a, that's a bold question, right? I'd love to sit down and have coffee with you and hear how you would answer that. So this is how Solomon answered that. Again, reminds us that he's beyond us. Uh, and Solomon said to God, um, you have shown great and steadfast love to, God, my father, uh, to David, my father, and have made me king in his palace. O Lord God, let your word to David, my father, be now fulfilled. For you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now, everybody say this with me, wisdom and knowledge to go, that's good, that's good, to go out and, <laughs> it wasn't clear, and I, we probably would have just gone the rest of the time. Um, give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. For who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? God answered Solomon, because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for possessions and wealth and honor or the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked for long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like. So Solomon came from the high place at Gibeon from before the tent of meeting to Jerusalem, and he reigned over Israel. He's beyond us, okay? He's beyond us educationally. He's beyond us in his power and in his uh, access that he has. He's beyond us financially. There's a, this is a major point, again, beyond us that, that we need in this explore, uh, exploration. He was worth $2.2 trillion. Okay, let's put that in context. Bill Gates, peak worth, $144 billion, with a B, dollars. Elon Musk, still a lot of money. Peak net worth, at this point, $190 billion. Henry Ford, peak net worth was $200 billion. Jeff Bezos, peak net worth was $204 billion. Again, legit. But Solomon, beyond them, beyond them, 10x, Jeff Bezos. He's beyond us. His wisdom is beyond us. And in his wisdom, he's asking this question. What if you factor God out of the equation? Is life worth living? That's his exploration. If you factor God out of the equation and you just look at everything under the sun, what do we then gather? Anything of significance? Anything of value? It's a great thought experience, an experiment that this teacher gives. He will use his wealth in chapter 2 to help us gain wisdom. And we're going to find that here. So that's 
the words of the preacher. I got 18 more verses. You know what I'm saying? Verse 1. You know what I'm saying? Like, here we go. Verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. We're going to stop there. Vanity. Another translation would be meaningless. Another translation would be futile. It's a chipper intro. This is how you want to get a New York Times bestseller. You know what I mean? So vanity. When we think of vanity, we think of makeup, like the makeup thing, you know, like you sit in front of. We think of that as a vanity. That's what's it's called a vanity. Uh, we think of self-obsession. But neither of those are accurate words that translate the Hebrew here. Uh, another transition, again, is meaningless. But there, uh, there is no meaning to life. And that also is not accurate. It's complex. Language translating from Hebrew to English can be complex. We can lose meaning sometimes. So sometimes the most literal translation isn't always the most accurate translation. It's the benefit of looking at different translations. And so the, the Hebrew here is hevel. And it's, it's implying a metaphor. Forty times in these 12 chapters, he uses this word, hevel. This word meaningless. This word vanity. This word futile. We must get this word because it's repeated throughout. It's the thread that's woven throughout Ecclesiastes. It means smoke or vapor, stuck in a thick, fog-like state when you just can't see what's in front of you. Have you ever been driving late at night or early in the morning when you have that and like your brights just don't help? You just can't see what's right in front of you? That's what that word's intending. You, you grab it and, it and it slips through your fingers. You, you maybe wonder why I have this diffuser in front of me. And it's actually because I'm, I was wondering if you guys wanted to get on this, um, this pyramid scheme I have. I have uh, <laughs> thieves. I'm telling you, thieves. If we all use thieves, none of us would have to wear masks. And so I bring to... No, I'm just kidding. Um, so uh, I actually wanted to smoke a pipe, and my wife said no. So... <laughs> So the second best thing was to use a diffuser. Um, and so this is vapor, right? This is vapor. It's here, and then it's gone. This thing's been running all uh, since I've been up here, and, and we don't see all of the vapor because it's gone. The moment I make sense of it, the moment I tried to grab it, it's gone. And what he's saying is everything is hevel. It's this vapor. When you think you have it figured out, you don't. It's a glitch in the system. He's engaging. This critic is engaging a glitch in the system that life doesn't happen the way we think it should, the way it ought to happen. We have no control. Control is but an illusion. We're all just a, a phone call away from a doctor telling us something we didn't think that they would say to us. It's hevel. And this can lead us to anxiety as the illusion of control begins to disappear or... The design of this book is that it can lead you to humility and faith. More on that in a bit. But this critic isn't saying life has no meaning, but it instead that its meaning is unclear. The meaning from our finite vantage point is simply unclear. We don't have the full picture. I don't remember who said it, Calvin or somebody like that, where you see if you look up close to a stained glass uh, window. I think this is an analogy I'm using in a future week, so dang it, Ernie. Um, I'm already too far in. Uh, but if you look up close, all you see is shattered glass. But when you take a step back, you see the beauty that's there. And in our lives, oftentimes all we see is this shattered glass. We don't have the full picture. It's but hevel to us. See, the writer here has a deep 
belief in meaning and the culmination of redemption. But he doesn't believe that we will be able to understand or make sense of it with our finite, uh, fi- with our finite perspective or with our five senses. This is Hevel. Vanity of vanity, says the teacher. Vanity of vanities. Verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Pause there. It's a lament. This is a lament that the writer gives to us. He's remembering the day when God created and said it was very good. He's remembering that there was once a day when God created, and that day was very good. You enter the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's taking a sobering look at what Eden has become. What Eden once was, and what Eden has become. See, what God created and purposes was legitimate and originally good. And to lose this good is painful. So you feel that in this writer. Everything is hevel post-Eden under the sun. And all your work, you will die and leave this place under the sun functionally unchanged. Everything is hevel under the sun. 30 times we're going to hear under the sun throughout these 12 chapters. See, what we experience under the sun is what we experience with our five senses. What are our five senses? We got sight, a hearing, taste, touch, and smell. Under the sun, with our five senses, we find that these things are but hevel. Hevel is not no meaning. Instead, I can't figure it out. Through our five senses under the sun, all is hevel. It's like trying to grab vapor. Now, verse 4. We're going to read a few here. Got to catch up at some point. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So just like the elements in nature exist in this circular silliness, so humanity works. Tomorrow, you're going to wake up. You're going to snooze probably three or four times, and you're going to get up. And you're probably going to drink some coffee or maybe some tea. You're going to get ready. You're going to try to get your kids ready if that's applicable for you. You're going to take them to school if that's applicable for you. And then you're going to check a bunch of emails. And then you're going to have a couple meetings. Hopefully you're going to cultivate and create something. And then you're going to grab lunch, maybe work through lunch. And then you're going to have some more meetings and some more emails. And then you're going to maybe go to the gym, but probably not. And then you're going to come home, have dinner, uh, watch or read something, go to bed. And then on Tuesday, you're going to wake up. You're probably going to snooze three or four times. You're going to grab some coffee or tea. You're going to take your kids to school. You're going to check emails. You're going to have some meetings. Hopefully you create and cultivate something. You're going to have a quick bite to eat. You're going to have more meetings and more emails. You're going to maybe go to the gym, but probably not. And then you're going to go home. You're going to eat and then repeat. It's Groundhog Day. We functionally live in Groundhog Day. There's always more laundry. Amen? There's always something to mow. There's always hairs to be cut. There's always bills to be paid. Every week, 
or every month. It's always the case. It's wearisome and it feels empty over time. The week in and week out, day in and day out rhythms of life. There's this march of time. Generations come and they go. Earth has been as it was before and will be after you are gone. We are a blip. We are not nearly as influential as we want to pretend like we are. We see the same sun that Adam and Eve saw. And when we die, the sun will then arise another day. There's a, in Greek mythology, there's a guy named Sisyphus. And he was punished for cheating death twice and forced to push this boulder up this hill. And as soon as it got towards the very top, it went right back down to the bottom. And for eternity, his punishment was to push this boulder up the hill just for it to fall back down to the bottom and then to do it again over and over again. That is what life can feel like for all of its beauty and all of its dignity. And we're going to talk about gratitude. We're going to be talking about being present. We're going to talk about practices of Jesus throughout this series. But we want to kind of get the baseline here. For all of its beauty under the sun, there is this hollowness that exists. As if our five senses just aren't enough. He's telling us that here. And then in verse 9, he continues. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been done, uh, it, it has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. See, people like to pretend, we like to pretend that we're not stuck in a rut. We use trinkets and we use stuff to deceive ourselves from this circular silliness. So we buy to try to use things to numb ourselves. We use sports to try to use things to numb ourselves. We have hobbies to use things to numb ourselves from this reality. The writer talks about inventions. He talks about, he talks about technology. He uses the iPhone as, we can use the iPhone as an example. The iPhone simply takes our body and creates extensions of it. We have our mouth for talking, our ears for listening, our eyes with the camera. It's just an extension of our body, doing things more efficient. It's a new way of doing the old things that have already existed. He says there's no remembrance of former things. Again, a wet blanket on our expectations of life. You're not the exception. We won't be remembered. Who's your great, great, great grandfather? We won't be remembered. Here today, Gone tomorrow, the wisdom of Solomon. Verse 12, I, the preacher, I'm going to read the rest of this chapter. I, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart, he's going to say that twice, to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is hevel, vanity, and is striving after winds. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has laid great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation. He uses that word a few times throughout this 
book. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So he applies the wisdom that God has given to him. And more on that experiment next week. But he applied his five senses to this... uh, to major human experiences, to uh, yearning for power and wealth and pleasure and community and work. And so he applies to, to uh, spins wealth and power. It's as if he did all the things the rich and famous do. And again, we're going to learn about this more next week. But it's as if he gets the Cristal and the Bentley and the things we used to watch on MTV on the, the crib show and, and purchased the dream home and, and played polo because you do that when you're rich. And he comes on the other side of that and he says it's meaningless, it's empty. And then he applies himself to what the redneck community would do. And so he does horseshoes and NASCAR and rodeos and barbecue and monster trucks. And he finds that it is also meaningless, empty. All have a sense that something is wrong in the world. Hevel. We can't seem to fix it. Five senses just aren't enough. The crook is crooked and can't be made straight, he says. See, until you are ready to honestly evaluate life under the sun, honestly look at your life, evaluate its meaning, evaluate that under the sun you are stuck on the treadmill, under the sun you are in the hamster wheel, under the sun you are Sisyphus, Until then, you can't accept what the writer is saying here. Until you're willing to evaluate these things. See, the younger you are, the harder this is to accept. The invitation in Ecclesiastes is to see that under the sun, we're left with a void, truly. That our five senses just won't cut it. Yet, the writer throughout this book says that we've been given what I would like to call a sixth sense. This is not seeing dead people, (laughs) but a sixth sense, the gift of faith. It has the power to take us beyond under the sun, not just focusing on what's under the sun, but seeing beyond the sun to see the broader narrative that's taking place. Under the sun, we are left with building our lives on anything good that isn't God. In the Bible, that's called idolatry, making good things that God created ultimate things. Good things made ultimate will drive you into the ground. Power, wealth, pleasure, work will drive you into the ground if that's all you're living for. And this is the experiment of Ecclesiastes. Can the five senses suffice and provide what we need the most? And the resounding answer is no. But there's a sixth sense that's offered to us. Faith, something beyond the sun. Chapter one is setting the stage for us and where we go. Life won't make sense. You get that dream job and it's not going to be what you thought it was going to be. You achieve what you hoped, and it will leave you hollow when you lay your head on the pillow. You eat so much spinach, and you might still die young. My nanny is 97 years old. 
She only drank Coke, drank Coke and she had Coke a day, and she uh, only ate vegetables out of a can. Ninety freaking seven years old. It will feel like Hevel, but you have an opportunity to put your faith in a creator who wrote himself into this story. That's where this book is going. That's where it culminates in chapter 12. He says, fear God and keep his commandments. This isn't it. Your decisions do matter, but they matter in ways you don't always see. You might be faithful at work and never get noticed. I tell you, your decisions still matter. Don't take this as an excuse. I'm going to eat Doritos on my couch. Your wife asks you to set the table. Meaningless. Why would I do that? Don't do that. Don't take this as an excuse. See, hardships may not make sense. Difficulties will come, but that doesn't mean it's meaningless. We may not understand, but we can trust in a God that we cannot control. That is the gift of faith. It's not a feeling. Faith is not a feeling. It's a trust in a God that we cannot see, putting our hope in something bigger than what is right before us. The good shepherd, who is greater than Solomon, is exposing this for our good, and he will walk with us throughout this book together. Someone greater than Solomon. Solomon's jacked, man. He had 700 wives. We're going to get into that. That's wild, okay? And not what God has called us to do. And so Solomon was not the ideal person, but there is one greater than Solomon who is. Life may feel like heaven, but we have a God who will bring good and meaning out of it all. It may not feel like it now, but one day you and I will exhale and it'll make sense. It may feel like the vapor, may feel unstable, but beyond the sun is stability. And you might feel anxiety. I've talked to several of you that are feeling anxiety and stress in the season. Maybe COVID has just triggered you in a way as it surged again that it might have caused you to feel a level of anxiety and stress. It's a reminder again of our illusion of control. You can trust in a good creator who didn't just create and disconnect, but he so cared that he wrote himself into our story as the chief main character to redeem and reconcile and one day he will wipe away every tear and make everything sad come untrue and that is our sixth sense we trust that it might not make sense now but it will we can trust in him not with our five senses but with his sixth sense and for now we lean into jesus and we follow him by faith and we trust him when it doesn't make sense because he cannot be controlled but he is entirely good sixth sense is what is offered to us. Amen, let's pray. Hallelujah to the one who came and made a way. Hallelujah to the one who died and rose again. Glory and honor and power forever. Lord, free us from our enslavement of ourselves. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you that you every Sunday, every time we gather, every day, you invite us to remember something bigger than ourselves.
And Lord, this morning, help us. Help us by faith to see what we can't see, what we can't feel, but we know there is no grave where Jesus is in. Thank you that he has risen indeed. The creator has come to reconcile and is coming to make all things new. Help us to remember, God. Speak to us through this book, Lord, in Jesus' name.